Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, if you'd like to turn in your Bible to that passage. We've been going through 1 Peter uh, in RUF this semester, uh, and it's been uh, a really wonderful study for our students. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, the Apostle Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this passage, Peter uses a descriptor of his readers, of the people that he is writing this letter to, something that he actually used at the very beginning of the letter. Uh, What we're reading today comes from chapter 2. Way back uh, in chapter 1, in the very first verses of this letter, Peter addresses his entire letter saying this, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. To the elect exiles. He uses this term exile, and it's a really interesting term. And then he picks up with that that language again here, calling us sojourners and exiles. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you felt completely out of place. You've been in a situation where everyone around you is culturally, ethnically, completely different than you are. And you just feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. Perhaps you have. One time that I can recall for myself, uh, when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to London. And the whole point of this mission trip was actually to to minister to Muslims there in London and to share the gospel with with Muslims. And I befriended this guy uh, who was a little bit older than I was. Um, Over the course of that summer, he was a, a Muslim man and... Um, one Friday, he took me to the, the London Mosque, which is, I'm assuming this is still the case, it was at the time, uh, the largest mosque outside of the Middle East. It's, it's huge. And so I go with him to the mosque, and unbeknownst to, well, I got, maybe I knew at this point in the summer, but Friday is the, the Muslim holy day. It's, it's like their Sabbath if you're a Jew, sun, Saturday or Sunday for Christians. It's their, their holy day when they all go to the mosque for their prayers and, and everything else. And as we're walking down the streets of London, I feel pretty much at home. Like London's not Tyler or Shreveport, but there's enough similarity between the Brits and, and us and everyone for the most part, it looks like I do, and, and I feel pretty comfortable. And then I walk into the mosque, 
And everyone there has this olive skin, brown eyes, dark hair, bushy beards, robes. They're going through their prayers and their washings. And, and I look like I do. <laughs> and I, am, I, I can feel just how out of place I am. And I'm just doing everything I can not to be offensive in some way or to do the wrong thing or to say the wrong thing. It was so just unsettling. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to to try and behave in any particular way that, that would set me apart. I was set apart. I was different just by being who I was in this particular place. And maybe you've been in a situation like that where you didn't have to do anything different. Just being who you are you are different from the people around you. That's what it feels like to be a foreigner. And that's what Peter is calling these Christians that he's writing to. It, even though they live in the cultures and the nations, the cities that they've always grown up in, they are foreigners in those places. And just as they were foreigners in the places that they inhabited, we are foreigners as Christians in the place that we inhabit. No matter how long you have lived in Shreveport, no matter how early your memories are of this place, as a Christian, you are a sojourner and an exile, even here in your hometown, if you call Shreveport home, or wherever you are. It doesn't matter. In this world, Peter says, we are sojourners and exiles. Peter also calls us beloved. And I think that word beloved is really interesting. At the beginning of the letter, when he says that you're elect exiles of dispersion, he says that you're elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge. The only other time that Peter uses that word foreknowledge in this letter is in chapter 1 verse 20 where he speaks of Jesus and he says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. If we connect that, the interesting thing is, he's saying that whatever relationship Jesus has with the Father being foreknown before the foundation of the world, we too have with the Father being foreknown before the foundation of the world. That that relationship of love that Jesus, as the Son of God, has always had with His Father, we have with the Father. I wonder if you remember the story in the Gospels where Jesus goes to John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And John baptizes Jesus. And, and Matthew tells us that as Jesus comes up out of the water, that the Holy Spirit descends on him in this physical form as a dove. And a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, is heard from heaven booming out, saying, Behold, this is my Son, my Beloved, 
with whom I am well pleased. My son, my beloved, beloved by God, Jesus Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, you, foreknown in Jesus, with Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine hearing the voice of God booming from heaven over you saying, Behold, my son, my daughter, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. If you're in Christ, you are loved by God. And it's that very relationship, that love of God set upon you, not because of anything that you have done, but because of His grace in Jesus, that makes you a sojourner and an exile. That is the very thing that sets you apart, that makes you different, that makes you a foreigner in the place in your own hometown. That language of being a sojourner, an exile. Peter takes this from the Old Testament. This was the language that was often used of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The writer of Hebrews says this about all of those who had died in faith before Christ came. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Strangers and exiles. And just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wandered through the land of Canaan as strangers and exiles, having been promised something that they in their lifetime never actually received, we find ourselves in this place where we have been promised heavenly glories. We have been promised a heavenly home, a better country, a city, a city of God, a city with foundations that we look forward to, that we wander through this earth awaiting the fulfillment of the promises that have been made to us by God. We will be different whether we like it or not. As the beloved of God, we will be different in this world. And so Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And there are two things that Peter urges us in this passage. He urges us first to abstain from what I call deadly passions. And secondly, to live beautiful lives. To abstain from deadly passions and to live beautiful lives. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
This is what I call the, the negative command. A negative command followed by a positive command. In, in the sense of, he, he's saying in this one, there are things that you need to stop doing. And in the next one, there are things to start doing. But first, we've got to deal with the things to, to stop doing. To, to abstain from. To abstain means simply to put it away from you. To put as much distance between you and these things as possible. To put as much distance between yourself and he says the passions of the flesh as you possibly can. So the question that we have to ask is what are these passions of the flesh that he is referring to? Peter doesn't enumerate them here in this passage. But there are other places within the letter of Peter that he does talk about what this looks like, where where he gives some description and uh, kind of fills this out of what are the passions of the flesh. And one of those places is in chapter 2, verse 1, where coming right off the heels of talking about what it looks like to live, to put on brotherly love, and to live in community together in a loving way, he says this, so put away abstain, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And I think that's interesting because a lot of times when we think of that term, the passions of the flesh, probably what comes to mind, and I know this is what comes to mind for my college students, is, well, this is sexual sin. Passions of the flesh. That sounds very uh, pregnant with, with sexual uh, Uh, terminology there. And that's part of it. That's part of it. We'll see in another list. But it's not all of it. In uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, he says, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's more than just sexual sin. Sexual sin is part of it, but it's more than that. Paul in Galatians 5, 19-21 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So sexual sin may be like the prime example and may often get kind of moved to the forefront of this list. But it is all about what... here's Here's a good definition for the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh... Our human nature without God. It is our natural inclination as humans. It is being driven, being enslaved, ensnared to our natural inclinations without, apart from, God intervening and giving us new inclinations, new desires. A new way to be human. A new way to live. That's what the passions of the flesh are. 
If our home is in this world, if this is the place that we feel most comfortable, then we are going to seek our pleasures, we're going to seek our satisfactions, our fulfillments in this world. And in all the, the temporal, fleshly things that we desire in this world, the things that make us feel good in the moment. But if our home is with God, then God and heavenly pleasures become the thing that we pursue. That becomes the thing that drives us. The Christian life, hear this, the Christian life is actually not a life of forsaking pleasure. Sometimes we get the mistaken notion that Christianity is all about just forsaking pleasure. It's not. Christianity is actually all about seeking pleasure. Seeking a higher, deeper, more wonderful pleasure than anything that anything in this world could ever offer us and satisfy us with. C.S. Lewis puts this really beautifully in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. You've probably heard this before if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis. He says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased. Not that we're taking in too much pleasure. We're too easily pleased. We find our pleasures in in much lower things when God is offering us such higher, more wonderful, more lasting pleasures than we could often ever imagine. Paul, in that uh, list that I read from you, read to you from Galatians, he ends it saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes when we read verses like this, this list of of, uh, things that we are to abstain from, if we read it out of context, we could get this mistaken notion that Christianity must be all about do's and don'ts. Don't do these things. Stay away from these things and do these things. And that'll make you right. That's not what Peter or Paul are communicating. Christianity is not about primarily what you do or don't do. Christianity is primarily about who you are. Who you are in Christ. It's the new life that God has birthed within you. The new birth. It's the new nature, the new desires and inclinations given to you by God, by grace. Paul says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God because a lifestyle that's characterized by these things is evidence that that person's 
character, their heart, hasn't been transformed by the grace of God. And it's not that if we stop doing these bad things and start doing these good things, then we'll get into the kingdom of God. That's not what Paul or Peter are saying. Rather, it's because we are in the kingdom of God by grace, through faith, that we will live as citizens. We will live like citizens of this kingdom. Peter urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, not in order to be loved by God, but because we already are loved by God. And he says that they wage war against your soul. It's this imagery of them being like these these armed soldiers who have a mission against your very soul. And that mission is to steal your pleasure away from God. That the more we meddle in these lower pleasures, the less we will have an appetite for the pleasures of God. But the more we abstain, the more we put it away from us, the greater our appetite for the pleasures of God will grow and become more acute. Peter continues in verse 12. And this is where he gives that positive command I was talking about. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter urges believers, as those who are loved by God, as those who are sojourners and exiles in the world, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. When he talks about the Gentiles, you have to understand that Peter uses his language throughout the book in in a really interesting way. Because he's actually writing to, who are Gentiles? I'll ask that first. Well, Gentiles are anyone who's not a Jew. Ethnically, anyone who's not a Jew is considered a Gentile. But Peter's writing this letter to churches that are full of both Jews and Gentiles, who are believers in Christ. So when he uses this word Gentile, what does he mean? Well, throughout the letter, he's taking Old Testament language for uh, the the Old Testament used to describe God's people, and he's applying it to the church. Uh, He calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. That was a very Old Testament term for the Jewish people that he's now applying to the people of God who are the church. He calls Christians a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So all these things that were true of Israel in the Old Testament, he is now importing that language as categories of how to understand who we are as the people of God under Christ. And so in the same way, he's using this term Gentile, not to refer to an ethnic people, but to refer to those who are outside of the faith, to the unbelievers. So we could read this verse this way. Keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. And throughout the rest of the letter, he goes on to talk about what that looks like. How is it that we keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers? But that's not his primary concern in this verse. It's not how, it's why. Why should we keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers. And his answer is for the spread of the gospel and for the glory of God. 
He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The spread of the gospel and the glory of God. This speaking against you as evildoers. Throughout the history of the church, from the very beginning, even to our present day, Christians have always been spoken against by the culture. Spoken against as evildoers. In the first century, the, the, the outside world, the Roman world, spoke really slanderous things against the early church. Um, Suetonius, who was a, a first century uh, writer, wrote that Christianity was a mischievous superstition. Tacitus wrote to the emperor saying that Christianity was dangerous and a race to be detested for their evil practices. Some of those evil practices that he talks about uh, were some of the overblown, uh, slanderous things that were um, people would take a, a, some a shred of truth and, and uh, twist it. And so, for example... One of the things that Christian, Christians were accused of was cannibalism. And the reason they were accused of cannibalism was because of the language that Jesus gave in the Lord's Supper about being His body and blood. And so people accuse them of actually eating flesh and drinking blood in their worship services as a way to slander them. They were accused of incest because they used the language of brother and sister to refer to one another, people that they weren't related to. And so outsiders began to, to think that, well, they're, they're actually uh, brothers and sisters who are getting married and having children. So they would accuse them of incest. They were accused of being atheists. Because in that day, to, to worship a god meant that you had a physical representation of that god. You had an idol that you bowed down to, that you paid homage to, that you worshiped. Christians had no physical representation of their God. They had no idols. So they were seen as atheists, as people without a God, because their God couldn't be seen. They were accused of being treasonous, because all throughout the empire, every home that you entered had its own gods. Uh, Every guild or trade had its own gods. Every city had their own gods. Caesar himself was considered a god. And so to be a good citizen, it was expected that you would worship Caesar as a god. And of course, the early church, the Christians, refused to do so. So they were seen as treasonous to the empire. Tim Keller writes in an article entitled, Why did anyone become a Christian in the first place? He says, Christianity's spread was seen as subversive to the social order, a threat to the culture's way of life. Christians were thought to be too exclusive to be good citizens. He continues, the earliest church was seen as too exclusive and a threat to the social order because it would not honor all deities. Today, Christians are again being seen as too exclusive and a threat to the social order because it will not honor all identities. Yet the early church thrived in that situation. I think there's something really interesting 
uh, and insightful about that. We're in a, in a pagan culture uh, that believed in all these gods. They were seen, seen as too exclusive because they wouldn't worship all the gods. In our culture where the self has become God, we're seen as too exclusive because we won't honor all the ways in which uh, the identity of the self has become the overarching uh, deity. Keller goes on with this question of why did the church thrive? And he says, the early church surely looked like it was on the wrong side of history. But instead, it changed history with a dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. That should be our aspiration as well. How often as Christians do we hear because of our stance on uh, sexual morality, marriage, sanctity of life, issues like this, that we are on the wrong side of history. The reality is, Christians have always been on the wrong side of history. We began on the wrong side of history. And we will remain on the wrong side of history. So far as history is determined by the culture and by the world's way of viewing uh, value systems, we will always be on the wrong side of history. And yes, in the West, we enjoyed a period of time in which the culture, at least outwardly, embraced Christian ideals and morality. But that time is largely past. It, there will be a social cost to follow Christ in our day. But as Keller points out, the church thrived during those early years because of its dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. And that's what Peter is calling us to in this letter. He is calling us to a dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. And part of that dogged adherence is actually living out the implications. A dogged adherence to living out what it means, what it looks like. To be the beloved of God in this world. So he says we are to keep our conduct honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There are two Greek words that Peter could have used for the word good. One has a very restricted meaning of, of moral right and wrong. The other is the word kalos, which has a, a larger meaning. It can mean beautiful, lovely. It's where we get the word calligraphy, beautiful script. And that's the word that Peter uses. A kalos way of life. A beautiful way of life. I wonder... Have you ever thought of a holy life as a beautiful life? Have you ever thought of Christian morality as something that's beautiful? God, who is a God of beauty, truth, the God who regularly paints the evening sky with the beautiful colors of a sunset, the God who created the Rocky Mountains and the Milky Way, who put it within man to create art 
and things of beauty, that He has created us in such a way that to live according to His law and His precepts is beautiful? That there is something as beautiful in living a holy life as there is in a symphony? That's what Peter is saying. I had a friend a few weeks ago tell me this really incredible story about um, a cellist uh, during World War II, I guess maybe immediately after. And in the aftermath of the bombing of a German city, he went out into the middle of the square with all the chaos, the, the burned down buildings, the shelled out from the bombs. And he took his cello and he just played. Played music. I think that's a little bit of what it's like to live a holy life in this world. A world of chaos. A world that is crumbling. It's like playing a piece of music on a cello. It, it, there's something subversive. There's something countercultural. There's something rebellious about it. Not rebellious to God, but rebellious to the ways of the world. That no, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to submit to the ways you tell me that I should live. Or find pleasures in the things that you tell me I should find pleasures in. There is something more beautiful. There's a more beautiful way to live. That's what it's like. He says that they may see your beautiful way of life and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why would they glorify God? I believe that what Peter is looking forward to is for the unbelievers who are slandering the people of God to see the beauty of their life and to be one to the gospel so that when Christ returns to judge the world, they would give glory to God in that day. Jesus Himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If our lives look just like the world around us, and the world around us has no reason to listen to what we have to say. We're just like them. But if our lives are beautiful with holiness, then they'll start to sit up and listen. They'll start to wonder, what do they have? What's different about this person? Friends, Jesus was apparently attractive to people who were far on the outside of any kind of moral uh, way of life. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. They wanted to be near Him. They were attracted to Him because there was a beauty in His holiness. May it be that we would live such beautiful lives before unbelievers, that they would see our good deeds, they would see that way of life, they would be attracted to the gospel, and they would glorify God on the day of His visitation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for this word from Peter.
Lord, we thank you that to live for you does not mean the forsaking of pleasure, but it actually means the tasting of higher and greater pleasures than we could ever imagine. Lord, we thank you that to live for you is actually to live in a way that's beautiful. Lord, I pray for every single person here, beloved by you, sojourners and exiles in this place, sojourners and exiles, foreigners here in Shreveport. God, I pray that they would go out from here and that they would live beautiful lives, following you, loving you, loving others. That the unbelievers around them would see that and be one to the gospel and would give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.